Hey everyone, I am Fran. And I'm Tom. And we are the co-hosts of the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast. Yeah, and on the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast, we talk about native plants, obviously, and also a lot of ecological topics. We have sit down with experts, we sit down with authors, we sit down with college professors, and really dive into some of these topics that you might not always think about when it comes to ecology and native plants. And, you know, doing this, we have a good time, too. We have a couple laughs. So oh, yeah. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> so uh, make sure you tune in every Friday, and until then, keep it native. When I first knew that something was wrong, I was developing some severe migraines. This is Alora Lagarde. She started kindergarten at Sag Harbor Elementary the same year I did, and is a close friend of mine. When we were in eighth grade, Alora started developing strange symptoms. I was very sensitive to light. I was really sensitive to noise. It hurt when I would walk because of the pounding I would feel, and being in class was just a no-go for me. Her symptoms started to worsen, and Alora's mom took her to see a doctor. My doctor first initially said to me that it was a sinus infection. He prescribed her treatment and sent her on her way. But a few weeks passed, and Alora's symptoms weren't getting any better, so she returned to the doctor. Her mom, aware of the many cases in our middle school, asked the doctor if it might be Lyme disease. He said that in the absence of a bullseye-shaped rash, which usually appears on the skin of someone bitten by a tick, he didn't think so. He suggested an MRI. So we started to worry a little bit more because my parents were thinking that it could have been something that was actually wrong with my brain. So I got an MRI, and there was nothing that was wrong whatsoever with it. We were in like a limbo at that point. We didn't know what was going on. Frustrated by the doctor's dismissal and their unanswered questions from the MRI, Alora's family decided to seek another opinion. My mom said that she was done with being at that doctor and it was time to move on to a new doctor. And she immediately, not even requested, required that they perform a Lyme test on me. Finally, someone listened. And it turns out, Alora's mom's instincts were correct all along. She had Lyme. It was, I'm gonna say like a three to four month process in figuring that out. And I'm honestly quite lucky that nothing severe really happened to me because if I was never diagnosed properly, who's to say what could have been the long-term effects? This episode is all about tick-borne illnesses. Lyme disease is one of them. And if you're wondering what this has to do with deer, well, we'll get into that. Lyme disease is the most common vector-borne disease in the United States. It's transmitted to humans through the bite of an infected black-legged tick. If discovered quickly, it can be treated with antibiotics. But if it lingers in your system for too long, the effects can be devastating. Long-term symptoms can include facial paralysis, arthritis, heart palpitations, nerve pain, and inflammation of the spinal cord and brain. Jane, the wildlife rescuer you heard from last episode has had Lyme disease twice. She's also had ehrlichiosis, another tick-borne illness. She's experienced some intense symptoms from Lyme, but they were pretty different from Alora's. Very high fever spiking, then normal, then spiking, absolutely no energy, body aches, just the whole nine yards of completely being debilitated. Surprisingly, that's not nearly as bad as it can get. 
You forget how serious, if you don't address those symptoms and you don't address the infection, that it can eventually become neurological. A lot of people I know have gotten to that point where they were misdiagnosed and then suddenly they had very severe memory issues. It really began to impact their neurological thinking and retention and really affected it in many ways. And it's frightening to think that that little tiny, tiny deer tick that you can barely see is going to do that kind of damage. I mean, I know people that have severe symptoms. My friend Joni was misdiagnosed and then properly diagnosed like five years after. She was suffering terribly. And to this day, she has terrible neuropathy. She has acid reflux. She has so many physical issues that have all stemmed from Lyme. And on the east end of Long Island, tick-borne illnesses are common, too common. I was at Wainscott Walk-In recently, a couple of weeks ago, and I said, have you seen a lot of Lyme disease? And, you know, they like roll their eyes, you know, oh, you can't even imagine. It's an epidemic. We have to deal with this. Lyme disease wasn't recognized as a disease until the early 1980s, which means in terms of epidemiology, it's relatively new. I spoke to Thomas Mather, a professor at the University of Rhode Island and the director of the university's Tick Encounter Resource Center. He was a part of one of the earliest research teams studying Lyme disease at the Harvard School of Public Health in the 80s. Dr. Mather believes that a viable vaccine would be the ultimate solution to tick-borne illness epidemics. For solving public health problems, generally speaking, history has shown us that vaccination is a great way for humans and animals to be protected from different germs. And so I think that focusing on effective vaccines that don't just solve the Lyme disease problem, but solve tick-borne diseases in general, that's like the holy grail, I suppose. Back in 1998, the FDA actually approved a Lyme disease vaccine. But anti-vaccine rhetoric planted a seed of doubt in the public eye. The vaccine's popularity tanked when people started to question its safety, and it was taken off the market just a few years later. There hasn't been a Lyme disease vaccine ever since, but there could be one soon. Dr. Mather told me that there are currently vaccines in late-stage trials. His lab is actually working to conceptualize a vaccine that could not only prevent Lyme disease, but that could prevent all tick-borne illnesses. Dr. Mather says it's a completely new way of thinking about Lyme disease vaccinations. Part of that different way of thinking has made getting funding for it more challenging. It's been hard to keep a consistent stream of research on it to make progress. We'll continue to try and raise funds to do more research on that. Until we have a vaccine, communities like the East End of Long Island are forced to turn to other methods to manage tick-borne illnesses. That's where deer management committees come in. I've always known that there is a relationship between deer and ticks. But until recently, I didn't fully understand what these seemingly harmless creatures have to do with the spread of deadly diseases, and to what extent they are to blame. So I called in some experts to help me break it all down. Deer play a huge role in the transmission of Lyme disease. This is Dr. H. Brian Underwood, 
the wildlife biologist we also heard from in episode one. He was involved in one of the very first Lyme disease studies on Long Island. Probably the most important role they play is bringing it to your neighborhood. Here's Dr. Mather again. There are nine commonly encountered species of ticks, and it turns out that of those nine commonly encountered species of ticks, pretty much they all have their own suite of germs that cause different diseases. Certainly Lyme disease is the most predominant. The black-legged tick, otherwise known as the deer tick, causes Lyme disease, and it's what we'll be focusing on in this episode. A tick, in order to reproduce, it needs to take a blood meal, and they can produce 1,500 to 3,000 eggs, a single tick, and those eggs then hatch, and for the most part, the little creatures that hatch from those eggs are called larvae. Generally speaking, larval ticks hatch free of most germs, and so they have to acquire a germ, and so they acquire it from hosts that are carrying the germ in their bodies. In this part of the country, the reservoir for the parasite, the spirochete that causes Lyme disease, is in the white-footed mouse. That was Dr. Jim Bevilacqua, chair of the Shelter Island Deer and Tick Committee and retired physician. We heard from him in episode one. So as the larval tick takes its blood meal, it ingests the bacteria as well, and then that bacteria goes through the next cycle so that larvae, with its blood, it uses that to grow, to become a nymph, but the germ goes along with all of this and moves from the larval stage into the nymphal stage. And then there's the adult, which predominantly feeds on large mammals, and that would be the white-tailed deer. So, while tick-borne illnesses originate from the white-footed mouse, deer still have a role to play in the cycle of transmission. In fact, they are the primary host of the black-legged tick. Ticks latch onto deer to feed on their blood meal. While that's happening, the deer make large movements across the landscape. Once the ticks are engorged with blood, they drop off. And if you live in an area frequented by deer, that could happen right in your backyard. However, a common misconception is that deer themselves carry tick-borne illnesses. One thing we know about deer is they're a dead end for the disease. That is, they can't give you Lyme disease. You can drink the blood of a deer and you're not going to get Lyme disease. It's a dead end. But they transport these females around in the landscape like NASCAR moves cars around the Indianapolis track. I mean, like, nobody's business. However, there's still much debate within the scientific community about just how culpable deer are in the transmission of Lyme disease and other tick-borne illnesses. I know many people with PhDs who would gladly stand up and argue with me about the role of deer in the transmission of Lyme disease. And that's fine, I'll argue with them, but we're not gonna get very far. Many of my colleagues think deer are a pox on the land. They perceive them as sort of the devil incarnate I asked Dr. Underwood what he thinks would happen if deer were removed from the landscape completely. After all, that's what some community members on the East End are arguing for. Take deer out of the picture. Now the question becomes, how many other hosts are out there that are capable of feeding this adult female tick? And good for the female tick. There's a lot of them, including people, dogs, cats, raccoons, chipmunks, just about everything. All kinds of creatures are capable of not only feeding these ticks, but are competent reservoirs for the disease. But 
None of these creatures have the same capacity for long-distance travel as deer. Household pets won't transport disease ticks to the same extent that deer do, especially on Long Island, where deer populations are getting more and more out of control, and property development is pushing deer to all corners of the land. So, is there an argument for reducing deer populations as a Lyme disease prevention tactic? Dr. Underwood says there is, but it's limited. I've read every paper on the subject. Deer are important. Will reducing deer populations help solve the Lyme disease problem? It will. It does, but it'll take a long time because now the disease is on the landscape. You're never going to get rid of it. So if anybody tells you that taking all the deer out means you're going to have an end to Lyme disease, is also lying to you. That's not going to work either. Once you got it, you have it for good. But by reducing deer populations to low levels, you really do change the contact history that you're going to have with ticks that are potentially infected with Lyme disease. So here we have one of the main reasons community members want to control deer populations. When it comes to disease, people who may not otherwise have an opinion start to reconsider. Here's David Hirth, a retired wildlife and biology professor at the University of Vermont. He's been doing research on deer since he was a PhD student. In my experience, the thing that causes a community to suddenly become very supportive of deer hunting as opposed to deer protecting is Lyme disease. When people's children start coming down with Lyme disease and when you can't let your kids go out in the bushes without worrying about whether they're going to come home with ticks, then suddenly communities become interested in controlling deer populations. Once Lyme disease becomes common, the deer lovers of the world are willing to vote for shooting them. So what would that look like? Just how many deer would we have to remove from the landscape in order to make a difference? According to Dr. Bevilacqua, researchers are still trying to pinpoint the sweet spot in which deer reduction starts to impact tick populations. The opinions are all over the board. Most people agree that if you take the deer population down to a low number, and that is someplace around 8 to 12 per square mile, that that will take care of a good portion of the problem. The real question is, is it possible to get that number down to 8 to 12 now in suburbia? And that's going to be very difficult. Dr. Bevilacqua told me that Shelter Island has had some success in bringing its deer population down over the past few years. In 2017, they were at about 100 deer per square mile. Now they're at about 76. But that's still nowhere near where they need to be in order to have a real impact on the incidence of Lyme disease. What that means is that deer and tick management committees have had to look into solutions other than hunting. Some people try to treat it at the first level, which is at the mouse level, which would be ideal because that's where the disease is, but it's not easy to treat mice, right? Deer don't reproduce at anywhere near the rate of deer mice, and deer are lots easier to see than deer mice. So, as difficult as it is to reduce deer populations, it's even harder to do so with mice. Dr. Bevilacqua told me that scientists across the country are looking into the bioengineering of mice as a way to break the cycle of transmission at the earliest possible stage. But we're still ways away from knowing whether or not something like that would be effective. 
Meanwhile, local communities, including the town of Shelter Island, have turned to other methods of controlling deer and tick populations. One method is called the four-poster. It's a rectangular object that, when placed in forested areas, attracts deer with a corn bait. The section holding the corn is bookended by two paint rollers coated with permethrin, an insect repellent that kills ticks. When a deer goes to eat the corn, its head and neck get brushed by the permethrin roller. The head and neck is the primary place where the ticks migrate on the deer. If deployed in appropriate numbers, it significantly decreases the tick population. A 2008 to 2010 study done by Cornell University showed that the implementation of four-poster devices on Shelter Island decreased tick populations by approximately 85%. But despite this success, Shelter Island has stopped deploying four-posters. A few years ago, the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation put out a list of guidelines regarding the use of four-posters. Policymakers weren't happy with the use of these tools. They congregate deer and feed other wildlife, all of which is not ideal in suburban areas. The guidelines they put out were strict. One of those rules was that the distribution should be one every 40 acres. And in order for placement to be approved, deer management committees had to get written permission from every homeowner within that 40-acre range. Which, in suburbia, is next to impossible. Getting every single resident to agree to this including those who already have a particular disdain for deer, just isn't practical. But Dr. Bevilacqua's doubts about four-posters aren't just policy-related. They have to do with science. Decreasing the tick population doesn't necessarily mean you decrease the incidence of disease. And that's always been the problem. We don't have a good handle on what happens to disease, specifically Lyme disease, which is what everybody's been concerned with. Wait. What? Decreasing tick numbers doesn't equate to decreasing disease incidence? I asked Dr. Bevilacqua what he meant by this. We do know that the incidence of disease is related to the number of ticks times the infection rate of the ticks. So if you have 100 ticks and 20% of them are infected, that'll give you a number of what your risk is. If you have enough ticks on shelter and give everybody Lyme disease 100 times over, well, you get rid of half the ticks you have enough ticks to give them 50 times over. So that's why it doesn't just translate. The complicated relationship between tick populations and the incidence of disease makes it really difficult to get accurate statistics on these illnesses, which gives deer and tick management committees very little to work with. We don't have great numbers on the incidence of the disease, which is unusual in medicine. So when you're trying to figure out what your local incidence of disease is, it's almost impossible. Matter of fact, most of the studies where you look at the effect of either four posters or deer culling or taking the deer herd down is they rarely look at the incidence of disease because the statistics are so poor. They use tick populations as a surrogate for disease. But again, tick numbers don't translate to disease numbers making Lyme disease statistics even more inaccurate. So this is of the problems that you deal with, which is unusual in medicine. Normally we can get good statistics in medicine. We are not able to do it right now with the tick-borne diseases. We'll be back with more right after the break.
Did you know that snakes are one of the most persecuted groups of animals in the world? Unfortunately, most snakes that encounter people end up dead. But the Snake Talk podcast is dedicated to changing that. Join me, Dr. Chris Jenkins, as we bring you the world's foremost experts on snakes and the issues they face. to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Okay, is the fact that it could accidentally crawl into your mouth, does that make it creepier? Now that you've <laughs> said it out loud, yes. <laughs> well, now I won't sleep. I'm really interested in this. I won't do it. I promise I won't cut off the tips of my fingers. Don't do it, Rachel. Put the knife down. I, I read this. I'm like, they have no anus? Is that possible? Rachel, Rachel, no, 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 you weren't paying attention. Blood and mucus. Oh, right, sorry. <laughs> and then at night, they come out and crawl around your face and mate with each other. Oh, oh. But sorry, get this. I would like to sleep tonight. It's yeah. like a hell mouth. I mean, it looks like a full set of like dentures have been popped in there. very scary human teeth. Why does this exist, Rachel? <laughs> This is Go probably ahead. very wrong, but it's like a <laughs> type noise. Reasons for its creation. Actually, you know, I should do like a mid-Atlantic accent for this to say. Reasons for its creation have remained unexplained. <laughs> so, As naturalists, let's face it. We find something dead. We go and we poke it with a stick. I did that with the deer what, like three weeks ago. As you do. Oh, All right, no. this episode is going off the rails. This is the quality oh, content people come here for. <laughs> Strange by Nature podcast was chosen as one of the best science podcasts of 2021. Come join the fun wherever you find your podcasts. Before the break, we talked about how poor statistics, an extremely wide range of symptoms, and the lack of understanding about Lyme disease's epidemiology make the illness difficult to prevent and manage. These factors also lead to an unusually high rate of misdiagnosis. It happened to Alora, and it happened to me too. Like my friend, I had Lyme disease as a kid. I was five. It was a Monday morning and I woke up with a fever and a strange rash on my leg. It looked like a very large mosquito bite, a tiny red dot surrounded by a large raised pink circle the size of a lime. My mom kept me home from school, and we headed to the pediatrician. Any health-conscious parent on the East End worried that a fever accompanied by a rash meant their kid had been bitten by a tick. When my mom took me into the doctor that Monday morning, she had a pretty good idea of what was causing my symptoms. After all, it was only a couple days ago that I was playing hide-and-seek in the grassy wooded area behind a friend's house, holding my breath as I laid in my perfect little hiding spot which was an even better hiding spot for a teeny tiny tick. Could it be Lyme? My mom asked. The doctor took my temperature and examined the rash on my leg. To my mom's surprise, he shook his head, noting the absence of the characteristic bullseye pattern and said, maybe a spider bit her. She's fine, it's just a fever. Kids get fevers all the time. Go home, he looked at me. Get some rest. 
I was handed a cherry-flavored lollipop and escorted out the door. By Wednesday, I was feeling much better. My fever had subsided, so my mom sent me back to school. But when she came to pick me up that afternoon, my kindergarten teacher pulled her aside. Look, she told my mom, that rash on Eve's leg, it looks exactly like the rash I found on my son last year, and he had Lyme disease. I'd go get a second opinion, if I were you. So we went back to the pediatrician's office, requesting a different doctor this time. This doctor took one look at my leg, and she told my mom, I can't say for sure, but that could be a tick bite. They don't always present as bullseyes. It could take weeks for an infection to show up in a blood test, but I wouldn't wait that long to treat it. She wrote me a prescription for doxycycline, an antibiotic commonly used to prevent and treat tick-borne illnesses like Lyme disease. I continued on my happy kindergartner way and didn't experience any more symptoms. Like me, Alora was initially misdiagnosed. And like my mom, Alora's mom's concerns about Lyme, coming from her friends' and neighbors' experiences with tick-borne illnesses, were brushed off by medical professionals. But unlike my mom, who voiced her concerns and got a proper diagnosis for me within a week, it took months for Alora's mom to get her case to be taken seriously. And Alora suffered the consequences, both physically and emotionally. My mom told me later on that she kept on asking my previous doctor for a Lyme test and he kept on saying no, which kind of goes into this whole conversation of black woman asking white man something and not responding or not adhering to what she is requesting because it doesn't even seem like a request at this point. It seems like, oh, she's just saying something, but I don't have to listen. And that's what she felt like in that situation. I don't think I really felt a sense of defeat, but I think my mom did. She was just like, I just don't understand what's going on at this point. Misdiagnosis is a common phenomenon when it comes to tick-borne illnesses. During a 2018 study, researchers found that a whopping 72% of individuals with Lyme disease reported being misdiagnosed with another condition prior to their Lyme diagnosis. But misdiagnosis affects different groups of people disproportionately. A 2019 study explains that the incidence of Lyme disease is reported at a higher rate in white people as compared to other races. Researchers believe that this disparity could be due to a number of factors, including risk exposure, disparities in access to healthcare, misdiagnosis, and health provider bias. In addition, the characteristic bullseye rash does not always appear with Lyme disease. But if it does, the rash can be difficult to see on darker skin. Another study from the American Journal of Epidemiology collected data suggesting that Lyme disease is disproportionately underrecognized in African Americans. Because Lyme disease has such a high rate of misdiagnosis, that means that African Americans in endemic areas are at extreme risk of being misdiagnosed if they contract the illness. Lyme disease is something that has the potential to affect everyone and anyone living in areas like the East End. But the lack of understanding about the disease and the medical system's inability to consistently recognize and treat it means that certain groups of people are put in an even more vulnerable position. In both Alora's case and my own, our mothers, who had experience with and knowledge of Lyme disease, deserved to be listened to by our doctors. It's true that doctors may not be able to definitively diagnose a Lyme case immediately, 
and it's understandable that they don't want to overprescribe antibiotics to every kid who comes in with a fever or a headache. But the bottom line is that doxycycline can nip Lyme disease in the bud, preventing weeks, months, or even years of suffering. So if there's a chance that their kid has Lyme, most parents would want to treat it, or at the very least, have their concerns be taken seriously by doctors. There are so many variables contributing to why my diagnosis went very differently than Alora's. We'll never definitively be able to say why my doctor treated me for Lyme so quickly while Alora's didn't. Maybe my symptoms were more characteristic of the disease. Maybe my doctor was more willing to prescribe antibiotics than most. Or maybe it had to do with who was asking to be listened to. In other words, Alora's mom is black. My mom is white. I, of course, like, I knew it was black in eighth grade. I'm very cognizant of my skin color, but like, you know that you're black, but you don't know that you're black in like the sense of how people treat you. Um, it's very, um, it's a hurtful realization because you know that People have perceptions and already have painted an image of who you are. She didn't know it at the time, but Alora now recognizes that her race may have had something to do with being misdiagnosed. For Black women, we have a stereotype of being bossy, aggressive, when we're just being assertive and we care. When my mom was requesting and asking, it's kind of like the doctor put this image of like, Oh, this black woman trying to tell me how to do my job. Like, I know what I'm doing. I'm smarter than she is. It's not just about being black in that sense. It's also part of, like, being a woman, too. Not until college did I really realize what happened. It's a hard-hitting fact, and the fact that my mom knew immediately what was going on, but I didn't, that's, that's hard because for so many years she had to kind of deal with that on her own. As I was conducting the expert interviews you heard throughout this episode, I found myself becoming increasingly frustrated with the lack of clarity surrounding Lyme disease, its epidemiology, and its relationship to deer and ticks. Although I learned a lot, I also found that many of the answers to my questions were, I'm not sure, or we just don't have the statistics for that. I asked Dr. Underwood if he ever felt defeated working in a field that is still in its early stages of understanding. This is what he said. As a scientist, you have to be willing to say those three magic words, I don't know. Just like doctors with their imperfect methods of diagnosis, scientists haven't always been right, and they don't have all the answers, at least not yet. I still have more questions than I have answers. But one thing's for sure is that we know a lot more now, 30 years later, than when I first got into this job and somebody said, hey, you know, you need to really work on this problem. If we're going to solve these problems, we have to be able to work together. And the only way we can do that is if you listen to me and I listen to you. Major discoveries and breakthroughs are in the hands of those in the scientific and medical communities. For the rest of us, it's easy to feel helpless. But Dr. Bevilacqua shared something with me that makes me feel hopeful. 
In the late 90s and early 2000s, the yearly incidence of Lyme disease on Shelter Island was quite high. Numbers ranged from the mid-teens to early 40s each year. But between 2006 and 2017, yearly cases were mostly in the single digits. So at the very least, the number of cases on Shelter Island does seem to be decreasing. What happened there? We didn't have our four-poster there. People were not harvesting and culling deer. What probably happened there was awareness. People became aware of the disease and took more time checking themselves, took a little bit better protection of themselves, sprayed a little bit more. So education is probably the most important factor to cut down on disease. It's the one thing that people can do and actually impact the incidence of disease. Everyday people like myself may not be able to speed up scientific and medical progress, but we can look out for ourselves, Dr. Underwood says, as long as we know how. I can keep Lyme disease out of my backyard right now. If I go out and spray it with uh, permethrin every spring and every fall, I can keep my friends, my family, my children, and my grandchildren from catching Lyme disease. I know I can do that on my own property and not touch the hair on a single deer. But by golly, I'm killing ticks right and left. Dr. Mather is the director of the University of Rhode Island's Tick Encounter, a resource in which anyone can learn about different tick safety methods. If you get bitten by a tick, you can submit an image of it to be reviewed by an expert. They can quickly help you identify the tick, the germs it could be infected with, and will suggest a plan of action. They're great solutions that individuals can implement, wearing tick-repellent clothes, doing daily tick checks with vigilance. And so that's part of what our Tick Spotters program is about. It started as a crowdsource way of collecting data, and it's turned into basically a portal to people to have access to a tick expert when they didn't have access to a tick expert before. You can find a link to Tick Encounter in this episode's show notes. Since her experience with Lyme disease as a 13-year-old, Allura has recognized the importance of both looking out for symptoms and advocating for herself. In fact, when she was a senior in high school, she started getting migraines again and became extremely sensitive to light. I knew immediately that I had Lyme disease then because I had the same exact symptoms. I had migraines. I was not able to be in class whatsoever and immediately took a Lyme test, tested positive for Lyme. Because she had been through it before, Alora understood the importance of getting diagnosed early and starting treatment. She immediately requested a Lyme test, got on doxycycline, and recovered within two months. But still, Alora's first experience with Lyme disease shifted her perspective on doctors. My look on doctors is I trust them, but... I always rather have, if I can, a woman doctor. Particularly for me, I love having a black woman as a doctor because I don't think I'm going to be misdiagnosed. And because of that psychological trauma when I was so young, now I have a new outlook on things. And I don't think that's how life should be. Like, of course, I want to be able to trust all doctors. I don't want to have to go looking, searching for hours to try to find a doctor because I have a fear of white men examining me. That's not how life should be. Her experiences also completely changed the way she thinks about deer, ticks, and the outdoors. Honestly, the whole process was exhausting. 
I'm very careful now whenever I go outside. I don't really like being in like tall grass. I don't like being around deer because I have a fear stuck in my head that I'm gonna get Lyme disease and I don't want to go through the same exact thing that I've been through already twice. She also learned that just because your symptoms don't appear to be a textbook case of Lyme disease, that doesn't make them any less real. Lyme disease affects anyone so differently. You can be fine or you can be in the hospital. It just taught me that like everyone's bodies are different. So if by being more protective of myself and letting other people know what the symptoms can be for me and that they could be entirely different for someone else, I would share it. And that's because I've been through it before and I take it seriously. If I never had it, I don't know if I would have this mindset right now. My conversation with Alora was really eye-opening. As we spoke with one another about our experiences, I think we both realized just how lucky we are to have mothers who advocated for us when we were too young to do so ourselves. And while it's frustrating to think about the doctors that didn't listen, it's made us all the more grateful for the ones that did. And as for deer, do they contribute to the spread of tick-borne illnesses? Yes. But do they deserve to be blamed entirely for the problem? Should we really be labeling them, in the words of Dr. Underwood, the devil incarnate? I'm not so sure. Deer, just like ticks, mice, and humans, are one part of the Lyme disease equation. They've just happened to become the scapegoat. But this is an equation with multiple parts. And we too have a role to play. The next time you think to yourself, those damn deer, there are too many of them and they're bringing ticks into my backyard, I suggest you think a little deeper about why that is. And if you think hard enough, you just might find a new scapegoat. It walks on two legs and has lots of opinions. I'm Eve Bishop. Dear humans, thanks for listening. Dear Humans was written, produced, and edited by me, Eve Bishop. All music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to Caitlin Kelleher, Kim Trang Tran, Elizabeth Afuso, Ruchi Talmore, Lauren Chapman, Jack Bishop, Laura Joyce Davis, Nate Davis, the Shelter in Place Alumni Writing Group, and my Fall 2021 Media Studies Peer Group. Thank you to KSPC 88.7 FM for allowing me to use the recording studio. And lastly, thank you to the Pomona College Summer Undergraduate Research Fund for helping to make this series possible. You can learn more about me and my work at evebishop.net. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to share with you a new wonderful resource if you're not already familiar. Our Hen House is a responsible, pro-animal, women and LGBTQ-run, vegan media nonprofit. Co-hosted by author Jasmine Singer and animal law professor Marianne Sullivan, Our Hen House produces upbeat yet hard-hitting podcasts that amplify the voices of people who are working to change the world for animals. Offering listeners accurate information and inspiration to create positive change. Their mission is to effectively mainstream the movement to end the exploitation of animals. 
I encourage you to tune in for the weekly Our Hen House podcast and monthly Animal Law podcast. Subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, CastBox, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also check out their limited series, Teaching Jasmine How to Cook, and their more recent four-part audio series of the groundbreaking book, Anti-Racism in Animal Advocacy, Igniting Cultural Transformation. Plus, Our Hen House doesn't only create podcasts, they create community. While their podcasts are free, you can join their amazing community of super dedicated listeners, also known as the Our Hen House Flock, for just $10 a month or $100 a year. Being a member of the Flock has so many great perks, such as weekly bonus content, access to their private Flock-only Facebook group, an opportunity for a one-on-one Zoom meeting with co-host Jasmine Singer to discuss your advocacy efforts, and invitations to join both Jasmine and Marianne Sullivan, as well as other members of the Flock, for their monthly Flock First Friday Zoom meetings. As described by one of their incredible supporters, it's like a book club, but for podcast guests. They do Q&A with recent podcast guests, discuss activism-related topics, and provide much-needed community support. I hope you'll check them out because they're truly a great resource. Visit OurHenHouse.org or search for Our Hen House on your favorite podcatcher.